This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA advocates for customer-focused FBOs. And we learn about the first collision between a drone and a helicopter. Also, Santa Monica, there's a new chapter. And keep your eye on circling approaches. David, are you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132424. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, tell us about our guest. You got to talk to this guy. I'm, I'm jealous. This sounds awesome. Yes, Ian. We have a special guest from NOAA, Hurricane Hunter, Kevin Doremus. And he was great on the uh, Skype that we had with him. And Kevin flew into the eye of uh, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Whoa. Yeah, we're gonna learn That's a lot. Intense. We're gonna learn a lot more about hurricane hunting uh, coverage and why it's so important to the rest of us here on the mainland. Fantastic! All right, cool. Let's get through the news first. We want to talk about FBO pricing. Okay, we've hit this many times. Real top line, AOPA is advocating for a more transparent fee structure, a more fair fee structure, and for general aviation pilots, especially those piston guys who fly in, and for a more customer focused. FBO industry. And the key being on transparency. So this yes. is for FBOs that want to position themselves at an airport or renew a contract, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And we, what we're looking for is no hidden fees. We want to know how much does it cost to land if there's a landing fee or if there's not one. Yeah. And uh, what about pricing for avgas, jet fuel, that kind of thing? Yeah. Just some general parameters. Yeah. So to get into the weeds a little bit on this, you know, airport sponsors. So this could be a city, a county, uh, in some cases, private Mm, owners, you know, basically the person who owns person or entity that owns the airport. A lot of times these folks, they might not be airport executives. They might not know the ins and outs of FAA regulations, Right. right? right? Could be just a city manager or something like that. And so they don't, they have to go through this really complex contracting process with each airport FBO, right? To learn about yeah. the system. Yeah. And so a lot of times they, they don't understand and they just have to go kind of with what the FBO is telling them along the way. Uh-huh. So AOPA has put out now, published a set of guidelines 
that uh, we think will help these airport sponsors when they're going through this RFP process with FBOs. Sort of a best practices approach. Exactly. That's exactly right. So um, some of the things in here. Now, this has come up, by the way, in direct conversations we've had where airport sponsors have reached out to us. They came here and met, actually, yeah. with us. And uh, there was a lot of uh, good give and take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we're basically really, I, I think, really common sense practices um, we're calling on FBOs to publicly disclose prices, fees, and charges. Right. You know, tell us what you're charging for aeronautical services, basically. And if the FBO is going to have control over the ramp, you know, what does that mean for right. pilots who come in? That sort of thing. And so, so you know ahead of time if it's gonna if it's gonna cost you twenty dollars or fifty dollars to land, let's let's find out about it ahead of time. Yeah. So we can publish that in our directory. Yeah. In other places. Yeah. And let's not be hit with a two hundred fifty dollar fee for landing and taking off within about ten minutes. Yeah. Just to deliver someone somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Which we definitely have heard about. So. Sort of, sort of like a mini. Like when I go into McDonald's, I want to know how many calories you know are on the different yeah. entrees yeah you got it and you know what the price is on the menu isn't it <laughs> it is so when it you is. go to pay for it it's like you're not going to drive up to the window and, and be charged 20 bucks when you think maybe it's going to cost five but that's true yeah and a lot of fbos actually do have these things posted now that yeah. you mention it yeah um, i just flew into a couple in north carolina and down in florida you know covering hurricane irma and all and uh i did frequently see some of the prices posted on little boards behind yeah. the counter and we love that i don't think that's asking too much yeah um it's like know what you're going to get and know ahead of time what you're going to have to pay and you can right. then make choices as a consumer makes so, sense. that makes sense to yeah me. seems pretty easy all right let's this is a really interesting story moving on the first documented that we know of documented now yeah this is important yeah that's right <laughs> drone mid-air collision we knew it was going to happen yeah and that that occurred uh september 21st between a dji phantom 4 and a u.s army blackhawk helicopter and now this is off of staten island new york pretty yeah. pretty busy airspace yeah um happened fairly low as you might expect because it's a helicopter uh tell me a little bit about the phantom four you've flown one of these things i have and it's a quadcopter yeah you know, pretty easy to fly basically the phantom three i would say is your entry level drone okay. the four is a step up from that they're not uh, okay Price is a relative term. I was yeah, going right. to say they're, they're not too expensive, but they're not too cheap. About 1000 bucks, something okay. like that. A little bit, 800 maybe. And, and um, how big are they? Kind of comparing it to a laptop. Yeah. You know, it takes up as much area okay. uh, as a laptop would take up. Okay. But they're not huge. They probably are about mm, eight inches uh, tall, something like that. Maybe a foot from one uh, engine pod to the other, electrical yeah. engine pod, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So, okay, so not these these aren't like global hawks. This is they're not small. Yeah, Phantom Four is small. Yeah, so something the helicopter pilots I'm sure never saw. Well, it would be like a seeing a dot. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you know what's amazing? Or a bird. Thing about these uh, helicopters that I think uh, non pilots don't understand is that the amount of power that comes down from those rotors. The rotor wash. Yeah, yeah. it's it's unbelievable and in fact i saw it out here a couple of weeks ago they're doing a construction project at frederick uh -huh. and some cobras came oh, in and okay. took off and they were they must have been two three hundred feet and the dirt at the construction project even when the helicopters went over 200 it looked like a feet, tornado right? yeah it's yeah. unbelievable and so you can imagine that if a helicopter flies even within let's say 100 feet of this drone it's going to suck it in or yeah. kick it out one or the other yep that and rotor wash is, there's no way that drone has a, any power against that rotor wash. So. Well, in this case, the drone definitely impacted one of the rotor blades. And, mm -hmm. and you can see a picture of it uh, on our website. 
but gosh, man, it really did some damage to the leading edge of one of those helicopter blades. And those are ginormous blades. Yeah. And it's a pretty big helicopter. It is. Yeah, they're huge. And so the Army said that they had to replace the blade as a result of this oh, collision. Well, first of all, was uh, would it not be a relative emergency landing in that oh, situation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They did do an emergency landing. And I would assume that they probably got some vibration uh, because yeah. rotor blades are balanced very well, as carefully. as a helicopter pilot, I was going to ask you how that would affect the flight envelope. Yeah, well, so uh, a Black Hawk pilot, I am not. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I do know, I mean, you can sort of think of rotor blades on a helicopter sort of akin to wings on an airplane yeah but you know wings that are spinning uh, you know very fast and so the balance is a big deal for rotor blades and it would totally throw it off yeah and i would think that that would throw the balance off and they would have felt some vibration and thought and they probably never saw the drone but they were like whoa what is that right and set it down yeah well now another uh, complicating factor um that we should consider is that let's always talk about tfrs where you can fly when you're supposed to fly that kind of thing yeah and i believe that there is a temporary flight restriction in place because the United Nations was gathering in New York oh, around time. that time. Interesting. So we're we're adding a little bit of fuel to the fire here, yes. and we want pilots to know the regulations, to look at TFRs, know before you fly, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, not pointing blame on anyone, but I'm just saying, if there was a TFR. You really need to be cognizant of that and yeah. make, make sure you maintain vigilance. So how do we know it was confirmed? Well, um, a lot of, you know, we've had this like, oh, man, I think I hit a drone. I think they figured out in Britain that they, they thought they had a drone as a plastic bag or something. Uh-huh. Uh, they found a piece of the drone. Yeah, like it was the the yeah, the motor arm. Yeah, which is a pretty decent size piece. It's yeah. about the size of the palm of your hand. Yeah, and I I love this quote. This uh, one of the investigators. He goes, the investigator did some sh- some shoe leather reporting. <laughs> I like that to too. It. So yeah, they they went and canvassed the area and found it. So. And if I'm not mistaken, DJI was helping out in uh, in this as well in the investigation too, because they do telemetry of of the flights. Yeah. Yep, they can. So yep. that's amazing a stuff. Important thing to consider. Yeah. So uh, pilots, man, pilots, drone pilots, uh, watch out out there. Make sure you do that. Um, you know, line of sight and keep yourself separated. And drone pilots, just keep in mind, man. It's like you get too close and you might not be able to maintain control of the thing. That's so, true. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, some good news out of Santa Monica. Oh, as the Santa Monica runway continues. Yeah. Uh, so last the time, saga. yeah, the saga last time we told you they were starting about to start construction on the shortening from 5,000 to 3,500 feet. And, and this time we're going to tell you that has been halted right now. Yeah. There's no, uh, no demolition right now in the imminent future, Yeah, but it was just delayed a couple of weeks. Yeah. So on October 8th, um, a district judge issued a restraining order, temporary two week long, right? That, uh, will delay the construction. They had already, I guess, delayed it a little bit because of a vendor issue, uh, which is probably pretty, it's kind of funny. It's like, you, you know, a delay in construction equipment to tear up a runway. But um, well, now all this costs money. So yeah. let's think about that. Yeah. If you're a citizen in Santa Monica and you're paying your taxes, did you want your three and a half million dollars, you know, three and a uh, half million dollars to tear the runway up? Do you yeah. want that? And where's do you want it to go to that? And where did that money come from? We talked about that a little bit last time. Yeah, that, that might that might be happening. And yeah. uh, indeed it did. So where does that money come from? And what's it going to not help out with if you're using it to tear up this runway? Yeah. And then, of course, however much money it costs to rebuild something to take its place. Yeah. So not going to get into the legal precedent here, but basically two residents are the ones who sued to, to stop it. Because they had uh, the city hill closed meetings. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because um, these folks say, and of course we agree, that this is, needs to be an open public process. Exactly. Happened behind closed doors with FAA. And um, now the court, when, when they issue these injunctions, apparently it's not just like, 
oh, hey, this seems like a good idea. We'll just wait and press pause. It's like, no, they have to have cause. They do. Yeah, and so the the quote is that they will likely prevail at trial. Which is interesting. Is the standard. that I think that that's inter- an interesting point to make, Ian, because that kind of leads some credence to the fact that, hey, you guys might not be that transparent with everything. Yeah. And that's a big problem. Before we completely move on from Santa Monica. Yeah, what you got? I do want to let you know that um, the longtime uh, airport advisor there, uh, Nelson Hernandez, is going to be retiring. Hmm. Uh, he does have family in Puerto Rico. Okay. He's headed that way. But he was a pretty big outspoken opponent for keeping the airport open. Hmm. So this is kind of an interesting move. The person that will come in to take his place will will only have a short-lived position because the position actually goes away in several months. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Well, who knows? Maybe next time we'll get to talk about Santa Monica again. I think we will because of Actually, the two weeks will be over, so yeah, we probably will. In fact, I know we will. We have some inside intel that there will be a future Santa Monica story the next time we have a podcast. Okay, cool. All right, let's talk about circling approaches. Okay. This is everybody's favorite instrument maneuver uh, right behind partial panel uh, practice. Uh, We were talking about this ahead of time. You're not an instrument pilot. No, I'm an instrument student, but I think I have a handle on this a little bit. Okay. Um, So as a student, this is going to be my test. Okay, here we go. So if I want to do um, an instrument approach and I've got a circling approach that I've pegged to do, Mm -hmm. that allows me to come in, does it allow me to come in at a lower approach uh, altitude uh, at, at versus a straight in, or is it a higher? Oh, see, now you got to go back and study. Okay, well, I can <laughs> read the story. Too. No, no. <laughs> so circling approaches, uh, basically what they do is, uh, let's say you got one runway, uh-huh. and the wind is blowing uh, opposite the direction of the instrument approach. Okay. Circling approaches let you come down, break out of the clouds, and then circle to land. So basically do own, a pattern. Pick your own runway at to that To the point. other runway. Okay. Yeah. And so because of that, because you're maneuvering under the under the clouds, uh-huh. it's a higher minimum than a straight in approach. I see what you're saying. So yeah. it's a higher minimum yes. to begin with. Yes. But then uh, when you are circling to land, then do you is the procedure you let ATC know that you would like to land on, say, runway 13 versus niner? Yeah, basically they give you a clearance for the approach, circle to land, uh-huh. another runway. Okay. That's right. And there are these really complex rules about how far from the runway you can fly and stuff like that. All right, so. So, the, so the gist of this is that it boils down to an equipment issue on the, basically the fact that the FAA is maintaining a lot of uh, instrument procedures and approaches and all the equipment we need for that, and, and it, it might just be too much to keep up with. Yeah, so circling approaches are uh, very common. They're at most airports. Um, m- a lot of approaches, in fact, almost every approach has a circling minimum, but not many pilots do them, uh, and that's partly because as technology has has expanded to RNAV approaches, uh-huh. multiple approaches to multiple runways has become more prevalent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you can see, you open up an approach book, and it's like the smallest airport that never in the past would have had an approach. Now they have RNAV. Now they have an RNAV. GPS, yeah. Yeah, and so the need for a circling approach to, to runways is less because you can just go to a different approach. And so... So they, the FAA spent $50 million on maintenance back in 2015. Yeah. Inspecting the instrument procedure. And, and that kind of thing. So I can see that this would eliminate a cost you know, associated with that. Yeah, and so FAA is starting to say, hmm, well, if we've got approaches to all these runways, why do we need circling minimums? And so they're starting to look at uh, basically eliminating some of these circling approaches simply because of what you say, which is that every time that 
that's listed on a plate, you got to go out there and flight test it. Right. Um, which is cost some You've seen uh, the FAA King Airs. It's like they, they spend oh, a lot of time okay. and money doing these approaches. They get a lot of practice. Them. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they're, they're pretty current on their IFR work. Oh, I bet they are. Yeah, they never have to do IPCs. There you go. So they're just getting into this process. Go online, read the story. It's, it's very involved. But we want to know. Do you do circling approaches? So we want people to share their comments with yeah. us at AOPA.org. Yeah. Do you think these things are important? Do you think they're outdated? Uh, personally, I never do them. Um, there's a safety factor. It's like, do you really want to be maneuvering low under the clouds with poor visibility? Some people d- just say as a matter of practice, no. Some airlines forbid it um, in standard operating procedures, that sort of thing. So in other words, really, the more stabilized you are, the the really the the more you can keep your head in the game. Yeah. You don't want to be twisting and turning while you're under the deck in pretty nasty conditions at times. Absolutely. Yeah. But maybe you think they're really helpful. Maybe at your airport they're essential. Well, it could be depending yeah. on uh, terrain and uh, location and uh, geographic location that it might be the only way to get into some places. Yeah, man. Absolutely. So okay. you got to you got to go online and uh look up the story. The headline is uh Many Circling Approaches Eyed for Elimination and uh, is published October 11th. And let us know. Definitely tell us how you feel about those. Sounds good. All right. MBAA time. I wish I was there, but I wasn't. <laughs> but there You're was back cool here st- posting everybody's stories. <laughs> but it was cool stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. It's always a good show. Um, always, you know, the heavy hitters, the big iron of the industry comes together. It did. Now, now it did start on a, on a sad note, but they did, um, they did have some remembrance for the, um, the victims of the Las Vegas shootings. Yes, because the conference was in Vegas well, It was in Las now. Vegas, and so there was a Vegas Strong event um, that we documented on AOPA Live this week. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the other side of the coin, Ian, was to help things get back to normal. And um, we were talking a little bit about this before the show. Back in um, 911, after those terrible tragedies, uh, baseball yeah. continued to play uh, yeah. a couple of weeks after 911. And it was a very big outpouring of support for that. Yeah. So the Vegas, Las Vegas NBAA was um, a, a step in the right direction to get people. Um, back to some sense of normalcy. Yeah, there was some talk ahead of time. It's like, do you do you go to Vegas at this time? Do you have a conference? Do you try and move on? And, and I know it feels a little weird to be sort of celebrating aviation and, and making deals and stuff like that. But the, the bottom line is, man, you can't let these people win at this right. stuff. And you just got to move on. Yeah. Um, Our hearts it, go out to all the folks that were uh, were injured and, and who um, passed away and also to the uh, responders there. Absolutely. So, but yeah, I agree with you and um, let's try to, you know, keep moving and, and move on down the line and yeah, yeah don't give in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So with that said, you and I were talking a little bit about some of the cool stuff that came out. Um, <laughs> g- give me one or two of your top. I really thought it was pretty neat. Um, this TriFan 600, the hybrid electric vertical takeoff and land aircraft. This is an interesting concept that might uh, help revolutionize air travel for folks in the near future. Hmm. So that was a, a, it's a pretty complicated airplane. Yeah, We're looking at um, ducted fans yeah. that, that are maneuverable, kind of like a tilt rotor design. Oh, cool. very cool. But, uh, but it starts out with, uh, with a turbine engine, right? And yeah. then it's got different drive shafts to different engines, and there's Whoa. battery backup and generators backup. And if all else fails, there's a whole aircraft parachute. Oh, okay. That's good. That makes me feel better. 
Uh, so is I this, thought that was interesting. It is interesting. Now, are, are we vaporware? Are we prototype? Are we? Where are we? Well, they showed a, a very small mock-up of it, okay. and um, and it looked pretty interesting. I thought it was really worth taking note of the fact that the operating cost, should this come to um, eventual fruition, it would yeah. be three hundred and fifty bucks an hour. Okay, which cool. is a lot less than a corporate jet. Yeah, yeah. And also, the folks behind this were heavy hitters. Okay, that's important. David Brody, a Denver attorney, and uh, George Bai, who we've heard of Mm -hmm. in the past with Mm -hmm. some other electric propulsion aircraft, are behind the idea with the help of folks from Augusta Westland. Oh, that's important. uh, Former Cessna President Charlie Johnson. uh, Former Mooney aircraft owner Alec. Kuvalier, mm. is that how you pronounce it? Mm. And an uh, TBM 700 turboprop uh, developer, uh, former Mooney engineer and Lancer president, Tom Bowen. Yeah, that's a great point because I think a lot of times it's like the idea is one thing, the people behind it's another. And so these are some of the same people behind the Sunflyer. Um, oh, right. Which is interesting. Yeah. So yeah, very cool. Very we cool recently stuff. had a story about the Sunflyer. Yeah, and yeah, because they came out with a four-seater. Yeah, and also uh, uh, several schools are interested in that for training purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Talk so, about operating. Yeah. So do you? So I, I, in my opinion, I hope it's not vaporware. I think it. I think it will hopefully come to fruition. That sounds awesome. The other thing that I was interested in was basically the the forecast, the the Honeywell business aviation forecast, and that was a bit of a mixed bag again mm. this year. Yeah. What are they saying? Well, looking at a slightly weaker global demand for new business jets and increasing competition from the used or previously owned jet market. Yeah. So that was interesting. It's down a little bit uh, now from Hmm. earlier predictions. Honeywell estimated up to 8,300 new business jet deliveries uh, worth $249 billion for the next 10 10 years. Okay. However, that's down from about 14,000 that were predicted in 2007, 10 years ago. Oh, so it's down. The from, new normal, as they say. Right. <laughs> but you, you, on the upside, Europe saw an 11%. Uh, well, on the downside, Europe saw an 11% decline yeah. in new jets. Yeah. Um, and North America uh, saw a 9% reduction as well. Yeah, you know, it used to be that uh, manufacturers went for like a 50-50 split, 50% North America, 50% rest of the world. Is that right? That was healthy. And so it, that is in the past couple of years shifted back a little more towards North America, and I know they'd like to see it more worldwide, so it is a little disappointing to see that. But used jet market strong. Yeah. That's an interesting message. Yeah, so good time to be a broker, maybe not so much in the in the manufacturing. Right. Yeah, interesting. That was interesting. And speaking of interesting, I'm going to yeah. throw one more thing out. At now, this folks. is my favorite, too. Now, you did the story, but th- this is definitely, I love all this cool, this is great. Well, so um, folks have heard of Burt Rutan before. Yeah. Right? They've heard scale of scale composites. The, uh, yeah. Scale composites and the Global Flyer, Spaceship One, the new Triumph business aircraft, and a plethora of other experimental models. Mm-hmm. So, scale composites had the first flight October 11th of the Model 401. It's a single engine experimental jet that was built, quote unquote, to demonstrate advanced low cost manufacturing techniques. Hmm. So it's a single engine, V-tail. Awesome. And if you look at the wings, the wings look kind of fighter-esque. Yeah, they're almost like the plan form of like a B, uh, B-2. Right. Um, yeah, it's like it's really cool. It's like you took the B-2 uh, and miniaturized it and slapped the fuselage of the X-1 on top of it. That's a good point. Yeah, and then and then strapped, you know, a Pratt. 
uh, uh, turbo and then uh, turbine and then uh, a Bonanza Vtail. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and you're right. It's a Pratt and Whitney JTD dash 15D engine, and that thing uh, will be able to power this to point. Mach 0.6. How do you say it? Mach 0.6? Yeah, I don't know. Mach, yeah, 0.6. I With guess. a service yeah. ceiling of 30,000 feet. Yeah. Now, the aircraft is only 38 feet long, but it's got a 38-foot wingspan, so it's mm. kind of like square. Yeah. They, um, it is interesting. You know, they, I, it's like they're not, they don't produce airplanes, so they're not going to be out there manufacturing this thing. But the, just the fact of the research into the design yeah. and manufacturing is really fascinating. It's cool. And it's a pretty, a pretty good lifter, too. It, um, it weighs 4,000 pounds, but it can uh, carry double its weight. 8,000 pounds. Awesome. Altogether. Very cool. It's pretty neat. Yeah. So some other stuff came out. You know, I'm excited. Pilatus Jet, um, that's going to be certified soon. Um, they were saying up, the charter outfit, um, really good business going there. Uh-huh. So, yeah, there's some good stuff going on. The Pilatus 24, I think. Yeah, is man. What that is. That's yeah. very cool looking. And the Strat- Stratos uh, is going to have another model, yep, too, Yeah, they right? got another prototype, so they're another trucking prototype. along. Right, right. Yeah. We saw that at AirVenture. Yeah. It's very cool. All right, so our guest. So Kevin Doremus with uh, NOAA's Hurricane Hunters. And now they use some uh, P-3 Orion aircraft. They use King Airs. Mm. They've got a Gulfstream 4. They've got Twin Otters. Cool and stuff. he was a great guy. And uh, our hats are off to the Hurricane Hunters who have had a very busy, very active hurricane season. Let's hear from Kevin. All right, so um, uh, we're going to welcome Lieutenant Kevin Doremus to Hangar Talk today. Kevin is a hurricane hunter with NOAA based out of Lakeland, Florida. Kevin, thanks very much for joining us on Hangar Talk. Tell us a little bit about your aviation career. How did you get started in aviation? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, yeah, I started my uh, aviation career in college. I, uh, I went to Florida Institute of Technology. I was actually originally a mechanical engineer, and as most of you listening probably know, Florida Tech has a aviation program, and uh, I was in the engineering program for about a year, and uh, started hanging out with all the pilots, and was kind of like, this seems pretty cool. I think I kind of want to do this. So uh, the next year, I transferred over to the aviation program with a full intent to be a commercial airline pilot. And as I was going through my flight training, I did, you know, all the way up through my commercial multi, and um, I got my CFI, my I, and my MEI. I heard about NOAA my junior year of college. And I'm like, that sounds really cool. I was really mm. interested in the sciences at the time, but I was also really loving flying. So mm. I found that there was a way to kind of blend those two together. Perfect. So I did an internship my junior year at the Aircraft Operations Center. It was uh, then located at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. I got to see the day-to-day operations on what the light aircraft guys were doing and what the heavy aircraft guys were doing in the hurricanes, and uh, I was in love. So uh, once I graduated college, I applied for what's called the NOAA Corps. And once you're accepted in the NOAA Corps, you can um, apply for the aviation program. The typical path is you do, uh, you go through NOAA, you go through, um, we call BOTSI, Basic Officer Training Class. Okay. For you military guys, it's very similar to OCS. It's about an 18-week, um, it's kind of like a boot camp. It's located at the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And they basically teach you to be an officer, how to be a leader, 
and then with a focus on um, maritime skills. So the typical path is you go through OCS or BOTC, you go do two to three years on a research vessel, a NOAA research vessel, where you are the ship's crew, you're running the, you're driving the boat, you're running the science, you're doing all that. And then once you do your two to three year ship tour, you can apply for aviation. I got very lucky when I graduated from BOTC, since I had prior flight experience, they were short on pilots at the time. So they let me skip the Marine part and I went straight to the NOAA Aircraft Operations Center where I started as a twin otter pilot. So the school had a pretty good aviation career and that gave you the, the background, the footwork, if you will, to get started in aviation. Absolutely, yeah. They had a really great uh, part 141 flight program there. Uh, and that's where, I, that's where I learned to do all my flying was civilian flight school. Gotcha. So you learned in civilian flight school, you, you applied to NOAA, you got going in that, you went up to Connecticut. Did you spend two or three years there like you said normal folks would do? The Connecticut is only 18 weeks. That's the uh, okay. basic officer training class. So that's your, our officer school. So I did, the, I did my time up there and then once I graduated from school, uh, the Botsy, then I went down and started to uh, fly our light aircraft, uh, started in the Twin Otter. Okay, so that brings us to a real good spot to talk a little bit about the aircraft that you guys fly, Kevin, because I know you guys have a pretty extensive fleet. And so before we get going on, on what y'all do on the day-to-day -day basis, give us a little rundown of the fleet. I saw on you guys' Twitter page that you have a couple of Orion P3s. I saw some King Airs, the Twin Otters. Just give us a quick rundown. I'd say the workhorse of our fleet is the uh, the Twin Otter. It's a DHC-6 made by De Havilland. Mm -hmm. um, we have four of those. And they are uh, highly customizable. They do a variety of different missions, ranging from marine mammal work, where you're looking for whales, turtles, and dolphins. Uh, we do air chemistry. We're sampling the air to sniff what kind of chemicals are in the air. Uh, we can do photogrammetry and carry these really high-powered cameras and map out the coastlines before and after storms. Basically, if you're a scientist and you want to get airborne, we can do it in Twin Otter. Uh, so we have four of those. We have a Turbo Commander. It's a, a 1000 series commander. And that mission is primarily snow surveying, which is a really fun mission. It's uh, 500 feet above the ground with a package that can measure the water content of the snow, which is really important for the river forecasting centers to basically forecast if there's going to be a flood event when the snow melts. Um, it also has the ability to sense the moisture in the soil, which again is really important for agriculture, flood prediction, water management, all that stuff. So that's the Turbo Commander. Uh, we have a Kinger 350 CER. Mm -hmm. It's got the extended range tanks on it. That mission is primarily coastal mapping. So if you've seen a lot of those really high resolution imagery from like hurricane damage or tornado damage, there's a good chance it's coming off of that Kinger. Uh, we then have a Gulfstream 4. That's what uh, we call our high altitude hurricane hunter that flies above, around, in front of the storm. And then we have the two P3 Orions, they're WP3D Orions, the nickname Kermit and Miss Piggy. Those are the ones that are flying into the storm uh, right through the eye wall. So now, are you versed in, uh, and type rated in all of these different aircraft or do you have a special one that you mainly fly? So uh, I started off my career flying the Twin Otter um, after flying about uh, two, a little over two years on the Twin Otter, I uh, moved up into the Turbo Commander, and I flew that for about two or three years, and then um, I, I went to training for the P3, and now the P3 is my primary platform. Well, tell us a little bit about the P3 since you spend most of your time in that, um, and this would be a good time for you to let our podcast listeners know, Kevin, 
Um, it's okay to call you Kevin, or you want L Lieutenant Doremus? Kevin is great. Great. Well, thanks, Kevin. And you, you, you sounded like you're having such a great time flying. A lot of our podcast listeners would really like to do something like that. Take us through a normal day. I know these days are really long for you guys, and you start with meetings, and you, you post your, um, your missions online as well, which I've written about a little bit. But take us through a typical day and uh, and what you expect to get out of that day absolutely so um in the hurricane season we're on call 24 hours um so sometimes we'll get a few days heads up sometimes we'll get less than 24 hours heads up uh but we're always ready to fly so uh we get our tasking from uh, the national hurricane center which is located in uh, miami florida and when there's a storm that's looking like it's going to impact uh united states or united states territory we'll go fly it we'll also fly storms that are that could be of interest to scientists that are doing research so if there's a storm just doing its thing out in the atlantic um some some scientists might be interested in doing some research in there so we we might go fly those as well but the typical day starts with we get our tasking um that comes in through the national Hurricane center comes to here at the aircraft operations center and depending on the type of mission we either have like a set time that we need to be in the storm, like in the eye, and that's called like getting a fix. And we could talk about that more uh, in a little bit, but okay. we basically plan our, our takeoff times around that. So we have a two hour pre-flight. So we show up about two hours before takeoff time, and we typically start with our um, briefing. So in the aircraft, sitting right behind the pilots, we have a crew member called a flight director. Flight director is a uh, basically an in-flight meteorologist. So they are really the weather experts of the storm. So the flight director in the morning will have the flight plan all ready to go, all the scientific objectives that we want to complete, and he briefs out the whole flight to us. So it talks about uh, what the storm is doing. Is it intensifying? Is it dying? Where is it going? What kind of conditions are we expecting in the storm? And then it's also briefing us on all the weather between us and the storm. So is it going to be safe to take off? Is it going to be safe uh, to land when we come back? Every crew member is in that brief, so we run down basically all the way through to make sure that we know exactly what's going on before we get out there. It's got to start with safety. That's the number one thing, obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have what we call an operational risk management. Uh, it's an ORM. And it's this really detailed document that we put together before the season that says, like, these are the risks associated with this mission. And we rate them. We rate how risky they are. And then we say, this is, these are how we are going to counter these risks. And then we basically come up with a score at the end to determine like, is this going to be safe or not? So we have certain criteria that, that we need to meet um, to basically go out and fly these storms. Um, if the storm is what we're calling rapidly intensifying, there's different criteria. You know, we can only fly at certain altitudes. And so it's all very, very well thought out. We've been doing this for a very long time and we have a lot of really smart people working this mission. So it's all very well coordinated. Um, as you know, the Air Force uh, flies these storms as well. They do reconnaissance missions. So we'll, we'll find out what their plan of the day is. We'll talk to them and find out, you know, if they were in the storm before us, what kind of stuff they were seeing, what kind of things to look out for. Um, so, yeah, safety is absolutely paramount, and it starts at that pre-flight briefing. So once we get that done, we'll go out to uh, the aircraft. We'll do our, you know, exterior, interior pre-flight. We carry uh, media many times, so we'll give them a, a safety briefing or any other visiting scientists or guests, we'll give them a briefing. Basically, once we're done with that, we'll do our, what we call our plane side briefing. So we get everybody that's going out on the mission is gonna meet inside the airplane, we'll get together, 
and we'll do one last final review. If anything's changed between the brief and the takeoff time, we'll review that stuff. And we'll just talk about general plan of the day. We'll talk about how we'll handle certain emergencies in flight. So if we have a fire of unknown origin, we'll talk about who's responsible for what, because we have a pretty big crew, uh, sometimes up to 21, 22 people on the airplane. So we kind of divvy out the duties um, for certain emergencies if they go wrong. Um, and we'll also talk about you know, standard stuff. Where are you going to be if we have to ditch? Where are you going to be if we have to maneuver out of the storm? So it's all these things that we're thinking about ahead of time to make sure when we're in the storm, we have a good plan. Makes sense. And so you, you've got your pre, your two-hour pre-flight. You've uh, you've done that. You've got your plane side briefing. If anything changed and talked about emergencies, you get in the airplane, you crank it up. You got almost two dozen people with you. And you guys are based out of Lakeland, so you're going to take off out of there. And let's just take, can you take us through a, a typical mission that you did for Irma or Maria? Just to kind of give us a, a, just a little taste of how that would go. I mean, these were major storms, sure. uh, Category 5s when they're out in the open yeah. water. So um, take us through that a little bit. Yeah, so many times we'll, we'll actually pre-position the airplane out to like Barbados where if the, we can see a storm brewing like coming off the the African coast and we want to hit it right you know right as it's coming over before it makes any land uh, interactions we'll pre-position the crew and everybody out ahead of Barbados we did that for Irma um, and we kind of like follow the storm back so the plane's got some pretty long legs we can fly 13 12 to 13 hour flights um, so we've got a lot of gas so for like Maria and Irma and Harvey Harvey was in the Gulf so that was pretty easy uh, we can reach the storm from pretty much anywhere out of Lakeland. Uh, so we'll hop out of Lakeland. We'll climb up to our cruise altitude in the mid-20s. mid, mid 20s. We're pretty heavy at that point. We're carrying a lot of gas, so we're not able to go uh, super high, but high enough to get into some good fuel burns and, and hopefully some good tailwinds out of the storm. And uh, we're flying to what we call our IP. It's our initial point. And um, the way that we fly these storms in the P3 is what we call a figure four pattern. And basically what it is, we start in our IP, which is one of like the outer rain band and the outer part of the storm. Depending on where we're coming from, it sets up where our IP is. But for the sake of this argument, let's just say it's the westernmost part of the storm. So we hit that point. We're at our um, survey altitude. Anywhere between uh, eight to 12,000 feet is pretty normal for us. Some of the smaller storms will go down all the way to 1,500 feet. Uh, but typically, we're in the eight to 12,000 foot range. We'll hit that initial point, and then we'll start tracking essentially directly across right we're heading towards the eye right so we're flying uh, 90 degrees to the wind so the plane will be cross will be crabbed into the wind all the way down so with a storm spinning in a counterclockwise rotation that's all hurricanes are counterclockwise in, the, in our hemisphere at least and so we'll uh, fly sideways to the wind we'll go through the eye wall and into the eye now everybody asks like oh how do you want to go in the eye that sounds crazy well it's really important for a few reasons uh number one is we want to know where exactly the storm is located so we get what's called a center fix. So our flight director, who we mentioned earlier, sitting right behind us, that's our in-flight meteorologist. And the flight director's job is to steer us into the center, most center part of the storm. And the way that they know that is that's when the wind reaches zero. Ah. So they're ah. giving us headings to fly. So like come left five, come right five, you know, steering to find uh, that exact, exact center part of the storm. And what they'll do is when they hit it, they'll take what's called a center fix. So they basically hit a button that says, record the center position. So what we're getting there is the location of the storm one and two, we're taking a central pressure measurement. So a hurricane being a, again, a low pressure system, the lower the pressure, the stronger the storm, the higher the pressure, the weaker the storm. 
So we basically find out how strong the storm is by that central pressure measurement. So we'll go through the eye and then we'll pass right through the opposite eye wall, right? So we're still, we're on the western westernmost part of the storm. We're still headed east at this point. So it's through the eye and we're going all the way east until the most eastern part of the storm to the outer rain bands. And then once we hit that, we'll fly a downwind pattern. So now we're in the northeast quadrant of the storm and then we'll do it again. So we'll fly southwest all the way through, through the eye, take a center fix, take a central pressure measurement, and then go through the other side of the storm. So you can kind of, if you map that out, you can see how it kind of looks like a big four. So as we make that second pass through the eye, we're gonna get a central pressure measurement and we're gonna get a location. So we can see, all right, the storm is tracking in this direction. And if the pressure is dropping between passes, we know the storm is intensifying. And if the pressure is rising between passes, we know the storm is starting to break up. That makes total sense. I totally yeah. get it. The way you explained it, I, I totally understand it now. And, and a lot of people wonder like, oh, why are you, you know, why do you do this with an airplane? It seems like an unnecessary risk. Well, there's no other way to get that central pressure measurement. There's no way to have a satellite do that, for example. When the storm is out over water, you know, you don't have buoys in the exact right position. And it's a really, really critical piece of information that you need that helps the forecasters say, okay, it's time to, you know, put up your boards, the storm's getting bigger, or, you know, hey, it's looking like this thing's dying out, it, it won't be that big of a deal. So yeah, it's a, it's a really, really critical part of the mission uh, that we do to ensure that the public is getting the most accurate and most up-to-date information. Um, this is a good time for me to ask you a little bit about how critical it is um, uh, for your missions to have that information relayed to other officials and to alert the public. Um, I know this is not exactly your, your ballpark, but I, I know that you probably can tell us, you know, in a general sense of, of view, how important it is and, and what that information means to other broadcasters, the people on the Weather Channel, um, the folks at other NOAA locations, and the you know, NWS. We're gathering information every second, and that information is going off the airplane in real time uh, via satellite communications to the Hurricane Center. Uh, we are also sending uh, radar data. So we have a big, I don't know if you've seen a picture of the P3, but we have this big, uh, we call it the jelly bean. It's in the bottom of the airplane. It's got a big radar and it basically sweeps 360 degrees around the airplane. And we are actually sending that radar image off the airplane to the hurricane center so they can see exactly the structure of the storm from inside of it, which is a really, really uh, critical piece of information. Um, so all that information that's coming off the plane, flight level winds, surface winds, pressure, all that stuff, it's going to the hurricane center in real time. So by the time that we land, all that information has already been fed into the models. The forecasters have already looked at it and a new forecast is, is likely out by the time that we land. One of the other really critical tools that we use is called the drop sign. And it's a small cylindrical tube. It's a, a little bit bigger than a Pringles can. Um, and it's got a little, we call it drag chute. Uh, we launch it out of the bottom of the airplane. It falls to the different layers of the storm and it sends back temperature pressure, humidity, dew point, and GPS-derived wind speed. And all that information as this drop sound is falling through the different layers of storm is getting sent up to the airplane. We process it and then send it to the hurricane center as well so they can see all the different layers of the storm uh, and get that really critical piece of information right at that uh, surface layer. You know, that's where the public is going to feel the winds. That's where they're going to feel uh, the brunt of the storm. So. Nobody really cares what's going on at 8,000 feet. We want to know what's going on at the surface, and the drop sun allows us to do that. So we'll launch uh, a number of those drop suns through all the different quadrants of the storm uh, to measure 
to measure it out and, and get that really accurate surface level uh, interaction with the wind speed. So that actually helps keep people on the mainland safe or, or folks in the islands uh, safe. So you want the surface level situation to be conveyed to as many people as possible, as quick as possible. That is so cool that the information Absolutely. basically travels ahead of you on the way back and the models are updated. Um, by the time you land, there's a new forecast out. I'm amazed about that. Yeah, the information's coming off the plane in, in real time and the forecasters are very close to real time and the forecasters are they're seeing it as, as quickly as they can get it. To, speaking of which, there's some new technology you and I chatted about briefly on the phone the other day. Um, I read a little bit about these coyote drones and that's, you know, drones a big buzz, buzzword right now in aviation. Tell us a little bit about these coyote drones. I know it's an experimental type situation, but if you can just hit the highlights of that, I think a lot of our, our drone folks might be interested in that. Yeah, certainly. So there's been a lot of interest in drones uh, in hurricane research. Uh, of course, it mitigates a lot of the risk of sending, you know, 20 plus people into an airplane into a storm. Um, and there's been multiple attempts at um, basically trying to replace the P-3, well, not, not really attempts, but maybe supplement the P-3 uh, with unmanned aircraft. And it's it's just, the, a hurricane is such a dynamic environment and it's really hard to do with unmanned aircraft. Now, one of the, the big successes, like you said, is the coyote. So we just talked about the drops on. Um, just picture a drops on with wings. That's essentially what the coyote is. Um, it's tube launched. So it's launched out of the airplane in a tube. Once it, it uh, gets clear of the aircraft, it has wings that pop out and a little electric motor that kicks on. It's experimental technology now. It's not uh, operational just yet. We're kind of working out some bugs with it. Uh, but um, in, I think it was in Maria, when it was offshore, when it was kind of starting to die down, we, um, we tested a few different Coyote models and had great success with them. Um, so the goal is to drop this into the eye so we'll deliver the drone into the eye. It launches out of the bottom of the airplane, and then it can loiter inside the eye for up to an hour. And what that will allow us to do is have a, uh, and that's going to be down at that really important um, boundary layer, that surface area where uh, it's critical to have that information. So the, the goal is to have to launch it out of the plane, have it stay in the eye and in the eye wall where the winds are the strongest, and send that information up to the P3 while we're up at a safe altitude, ah. continuing our mission. This last test was, it was very successful. Um, they are one-time use. Um, since it is experimental technology, it is uh, expensive, but the goal is to basically test it out until we've got a good product. And then once we're able to mass produce it, hopefully um, replace 10 plus drop songs with one coyote and eventually save money over time. So it's got a lot of promise. We've got uh, some ways to go. But, um, you know, in, in this industry, you need to constantly be innovating and looking for ways to do our mission better. And the Coyote is um, starting to look like it might be one of those uh, valuable tools in the future. And so it, it provides information from the eye of the hurricane right up to the uh, Orion P3 that you're in, and you're basically um, orbiting above that. So it's feeding that information right up the pipe right to you. Absolutely. And then we're feeding it to the Hurricane Center. Gotcha. Now this year, it appears to me that we've had a pretty active hurricane season. In my previous life, I was a photojournalist. I covered a bunch of hurricanes, you know, land-based. Um, but I participated in a couple of relief missions this year, um, as a lot of AOPA um, folks did. And we based out of Lakeland, right near you guys. I'm just sorry that we didn't get a chance to connect down there. 
But it's been a really active yeah. year as far as I can tell. Now, is it really active or is it just does it just appear that way? Statistically speaking, yes, it has been active compared to years past. And we were uh, we when I say we, I mean, Big Noah was expecting that, you know, the last few seasons have been under an El Nino current. And, you know, historically with El Nino, you have a less active hurricane season. Well, this year we're transitioning to La Nina and that should mean potentially more hurricanes. So the NOAA forecast has been pretty good and it definitely has been active for sure. It's good for us. We like the business. We like flying. Uh, not necessarily good for everybody else, but yeah, it's been it's been busy and it all kind of came in a in a few weeks. So we were we were going pretty hard here at the Aircraft Operations Center for for quite a while. We're 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 happy right now. We've got a we've got a little time to to catch our breath and patch up the airplanes and, and have them ready for the next storm if there is one. That was something else I was going to ask you about, um, Kevin. With all the aircraft that you guys have at your uh, disposal, you know, in the fleet, um, you certainly must have a lot of uh, backup help and a lot of folks that are, you know, doing the maintenance, not just on the aircraft, but on all the telemetry and all the electronic systems and the digital data gathering systems that you're using. Oh, yeah. Uh, just give me a little bit of a high-level yeah. view of, about how you know who does what on that, or how many folks are involved with keeping things in the air. Yeah, I mean they're certainly the uh, the unsung heroes of this whole operation. You know, everybody always you know wants to talk to the pilots, but what they don't realize is there's so much going on uh, on the backside of that just to get that airplane up in the air. Um, so we have a really awesome uh, group of uh, men and women that support our aircraft, like you said, the science side of it and also just the pure mechanical side of it. So we do have mechanics that are on hand and when we're working 24 hours, they're also working 24 hours. Um, I think it was during, I think it was during Irma, it appears that we hit a bird in the eye wall and we didn't, we didn't find it or in the eye, we didn't find it until we landed uh, and with our, the lower oil cooler inlet scoop was totally smashed in and we were we were wanting to fly in the next 24 hours 12 or 24 hours i don't remember and those guys got right to work you know we have a in-house sheet metal shop which are they are so good at what they do they can fabricate anything they can make any repairs so they got the plane fixed up and ready for the next mission and nobody even really knew about it they are really really good at what they do and then we have the science system so there's a lot of different data systems on the airplane you know, as we're flying around, we're not just doing reconnaissance, we're also running multiple experiments at a time. So we'll have scientists, there's three or four different sensors going on at the same time. Most of them are maintained in-house here. We have aerospace engineers, we have electrical engineers. Um, we have a lot of really, really smart people working here and they do a really good job of making sure that plane is mission ready. That is an interesting point that you just brought up about uh, the engineering staff because a uh, big buzzword uh, these days, and AOPA is heavily involved with this high school kids uh, studying this, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. So it sounds like even folks who might not be aviators at heart might have a place uh, at NOAA with the Hurricane Hunters team if they're engineers or if they're, you know, avionics specialists, something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we're always looking for, you know, new, young, motivated people to come in and help us innovate. It's really neat. You know, we're talking about the P3, but, you know, all of our other aircraft are highly modified. And a lot of those modifications are done right here in-house because a scientist approaches us and says, hey, I want to do this any number of scientific studies. You know, recently we were asked if we could fly a Twin Otter on the north slope of Alaska, so the most northern point of Alaska, 
and drop a buoy out of it that can measure the ocean temperatures in like multiple different depths. And so our engineers and our sheet metal guys got together and they came up with a tube launch system that bolted to the airplane and it worked out perfectly. Just one example of many where we have the expertise in-house to make these modifications to the aircraft to make them flying scientific research platforms. It's really, really cool. That is fascinating. That is amazing stuff. The other thing that I know that you guys do is a little bit more recon on the back end, including after Harvey and um, after, Ir well, specifically I know after Irma, the King Airs uh, went, the King Air went flying and documented parts of the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico that were heavily damaged. And that looked like um, pretty spectacular photography from pretty high up. Can you just tell me about the altitude yeah. you guys are, are taking those uh, special photos from? Sure. And it's, it's actually not just the King Air. The Twin Otters can also be outfitted with the same exact camera package. This year, it ended up the Kinger did the brunt of the work, but the Twin Otter uh, did a lot of the flying as well, uh, which again goes to show, you know, highly capable, highly customizable platforms uh, that can do this mission. But uh, yeah, the the Kinger crews have been very, very busy. They flew in the backside of pretty much everyone that made landfall, and they'll fly as soon as the weather allows. Altitude varies. The cameras do best around like eight, around 8,000 feet. You can fly them as low as uh, 1,500 feet. I believe for most of the images in Irma, it was like in the four or 5,000 feet. I personally didn't fly those missions, but we basically have two pilots that are flying. We have a sensor operator in the back who's uh, running the camera system. And um, it's really, really high resolution camera. Um, we can shoot either straight down or we can shoot what we call oblique, um, which is really important for the hurricane efforts. So it basically can take a downward angle shot so you can not just see the roofs, but you can see the side of the houses. So we'll go fly these missions. The camera's doing all the work. It's stitching these images together. And within a few hours of landing, those images are uploaded onto the, uh, the website where they are publicly available. FEMA will use them to kind of determine where they need to direct their efforts. They have actually recently been able to essentially issue claims based off of just looking at these images because they're so high resolution, you can see the damage up close and personal. Um, I, we got a lot of really great feedback from people living in the Florida Keys mm -hmm. where they weren't able to go down to their houses. Right. The roads were closed, there's too much debris, but they could see, oh, hey, my boat got pushed into my neighbor's yard or my house looks good or it looks like I lost my deck. Uh, it just brings a lot of peace of mind just knowing like, hey, everything's okay. I can see my house. It's a really, really important mission that we do. We can also carry a really interesting package. It's called uh, LIDAR. It's basically a laser camera. And what the LIDAR allows us to do is actually map out underwater for like nautical charts or after a hurricane, you know, a hurricane comes in, it can change the shape of a channel, maybe to a point where a, a big boat coming in that's trying to get supplies might run aground. So we can actually go out and map out these channels to make sure that these ships can make safe passage. So that's another uh, mission that the King Air and the Twin Otters can do. Wow, I had no idea. That really pulls it all together, you know, uh, what NOAA is doing. Yeah. And and, uh, and really, the uh, the abbreviation uh, for NOAA, I mean, you guys are doing oceanic work, atmospheric work, you're doing aviation work. It, it really encompasses a, quite a variety 
of technology and forecasting and really um, different businesses too. Absolutely. And on the non-aviation side, you know, a big part of the NOAA Corps is marine-based and they have, it's called the National Response Team. They're basically small boats that could be trailered anywhere and they have what's called side, uh, side scanning sonar, which they can go deploy again on the backside of storms. And if we can't get there by air, they can take in their small boats and again, map out these um, big, like inter either intercoastal waterways or harbors to make sure that relief vessels can come in and out. So we're also hitting it on the ground, not just in the air. Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot on your plates uh, uh, on the ground, in the sea, and in the air. So is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is really important for our podcast listeners? Keep in mind we're you know, a general aviation bunch here, but we do have that science, technology, engineering, and math component for folks who just want to get into the industry. And we do write a lot about colleges, yeah. especially the, like the college that you went to and the Embry-Riddles and UNDs of the world. What, what kind of words of wisdom could you give to our up-and-coming folks who might want to enter the aviation field? Yeah, absolutely. So as a, as a NOAA Corps officer, we were required to have a degree in science, technology, engineering, or math. Uh, that is a, a basic entry-level requirement. You, are, you have to take Calc 1, Calc 2, Physics 1, Physics 2, and basically you have to have a degree that matches up with NOAA's mission. And that's important, like we're pilots, but we also need to understand the science and the scientific process and how it's happening so that we in the front end can provide a good platform for scientists to do work. Uh, so that's, that's really important. That's why we really like to hire people that are not just pilots, but they're also scientifically minded. We're also looking for people that are leaders. Um, we're looking for the people that was the, you know, the captain of the soccer team or the president of a student club or, you know, we're just looking for people that are well-rounded. We are looking for leaders. We do hold leadership roles here at the Aircraft Operations Center when we're not flying. And, and that's a, a big part of being in the NOAA Corps is being a, a good leader. On the ship side, um, if you do end up on the marine time side, you are the ship's crew. You are driving the boat. You are managing a large crew of people. Um, so it's really important that you have that, that leadership experience. But yeah, I, you know, I, I like to think of it as the uh, the hidden gem of the uniform services. So I am part of not the armed service, but the uniform service. So I wear rank. I'm a lieutenant. Um, on paper, I get paid like any other active duty military officer. I get all the same benefits as being an active duty military officer. So I get GI Bill, VA loan, uh, you know, all the tax. I can go shopping on base. And it's a, it's a really, really great job. I, I can't. I can't say enough good things about it. It's definitely been my dream job. And um, I hope that more people can learn about it. You know, I wish I, I heard about it before I went to college because I would have changed my whole path just to, you know, make sure I was perfectly set up for it because it is, it is such a great job. And I, I highly encourage people to check out our website. If you go just Google NOAA Corps, you can find it. Or if you go NOAA OMAO, that's our Office of Marine and Aviation operations, you can see a lot of the different missions that we do, not just airborne side, but also on the ship side as well. Fantastic, Kevin. I appreciate it. That was a very well-rounded look at what a Hurricane Hunter's day would be like and a little bit of how to get into the field of aviation, uh, maritime fields, and also uh, atmospheric fields and science in a big way. So we really appreciate that. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to let us know about? You mentioned it earlier. We put a lot of our most current stuff up on our Facebook and our Twitter accounts. So it's uh, facebook.com slash NOAA Hurricane Hunters. And then if you just look on Twitter, it's at Noah Her Hunter, H-U-R-R -R Hunter. And uh, you can see all of our latest videos. We try to 
you know, make it feel like you guys are a part of the operation. So we, we put a lot out there and, and hopefully you guys are looking at it and you're liking it. And uh, if you're ever in Lakeland, um, you can send an email uh, via our website and we'd love to give tours and, and show you around. We appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you so much again. Lieutenant Kevin Doremus, we appreciate your time here, letting everyone know on Hangar Talk just what you guys do, and just want to say a big thanks for your work and your service to us and for helping keep people safe. Thank you. And I'm an AOPA member as well. I have been for a long time, so I appreciate what you guys do as well. Awesome. Hopefully we'll meet each other in person one day soon. And until then, thanks again. I'm going to sign off right now from the Skype. We appreciate you meeting with us on Skype, and hopefully we'll see each other before not too long. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, David, that, that's so cool. The stuff they do just blows my mind. I it's, cannot believe that awesome. they go through the middle of the eye of the storm I know. multiple times. I know. You think people are running away from that, and they're up in an airplane doing it. They're it's in like, the plane doing it, and, yeah. but they're trying to keep us folks safe. Yeah. That's important stuff. Yeah, and it, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to separate. It's like you hear about scientific advancements, and you think, God, how does this affect me? But the weather community is clear that these guys are critical for, they the, are. for early warning of hurricanes. Mission critical. Yeah. And, and as Kevin told us, folks who are interested in aviation, science, technology, engineering, and math students in high school, they have a lot of opportunities that they could pursue. Yeah. Great job. All right. I think that's all the time we got for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can get us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and Sporty's Takeoff app and at the Apple iTunes store. All right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.